We're in chapter 11 of Numbers. And Numbers, last week was the triumphant Exodus, part two. Right? They did the Passover, and then they marched out, just like they had done from Egypt. Passover, march out to freedom. And it was all great, and it was awesome, and God was... Um, Moses had this like battle cry that he lets out as the ark was going forward, and everything seems great. But the book's not over. Chapter 11. As soon as they, now, now you've got to get this setting. The previous line, like, so chapters and verses were added much, 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 much later. So the text just should read fluidly from the last section, from the last chapter. So there's an abrupt switch that happens in the attitude of everything. It's like they're marching out. They've spent a year, more than a year, 13 months probably, camped around Mount Sinai, being provided food every day. They're in the wilderness. They're in the, the you know, Arabian desert. And they're getting food every day, not just for them, but for also for their animals. And they're, they're being provided for. They're free. They're no longer under bondage in Egypt, making bricks and building things for people's, uh, Pharaoh's monuments. So things, I mean, they're, they're set. They've entered into this covenant relationship. When they came out of Egypt, they were like a, a mixed multitude and a group of slaves, basically, for 400 years slaves. Now they've come out. Now they're an organized, regimented army. They're the army of God. They're, they're literally camped in regiments, as we've seen in the previous weeks. So now they're, they're a whole different thing than what they were when they came out of Egypt. So when they came out of Egypt, they would complain every now and then, right? Because they were new. This was new. It was a new experience. They were city Egypt dwellers forever, for generations and generations. Now they're out in the wilderness. And so they complain, if you remember back in Exodus around chapter 16, they complain, hey, what are we going to eat out here? And so what does God do? He sends them this stuff called, what is it? And we say manna, yeah. But literally in Hebrew, manhu, what is it? So he sends them this what is it stuff. And, and then they said, you know, what are we going to eat? Uh, in addition to this, you know, what about like meat? And he sends them quail. He blows some quail in from the sea, which is a regular occurrence in that part of the world, a seasonal occurrence. But it, the timing was precipitous and miraculous. So now they have quail to eat and they have manna. And they're, they're, they're all right. I mean, they're provided for. You give water from a rock, all this stuff. Then they camp for a year at Mount Sinai in his presence. And they see him. They enter into covenant with him. They get transformed. They now have a priesthood. They have a functioning Mount Sinai that will travel with them wherever they go, which is known as the tabernacle. They have all of this stuff. So now they're at a different stage than they were the last time these events in this chapter popped up. So we read chapter 11, verse 1. Now the people, and NIV says complained, but it's, it's stronger than complaining. It's lamenting. Some older translations say murmuring, but that implies like, you know, you know, murmuring church people. It's not that. This is like, we don't really have a word that doesn't belittle it. You know, even grumbling, we just think of like a grumpy bear. Like, but it's not that. It's like, lamenting, uh, crying out. It's going to later talk about them wailing out about it. They're crying about it. They're, they're, it's not just a little minor complaint. So the people complained, murmured, whatever, about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. And when he heard them, his anger was aroused. Then fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. Now, 
There's a question here. Does that mean people in the outskirts or the outskirts of the camp? The outskirts of the camp was where the unclean stuff was sent. It was where the, the garbage and the, the impure things and, and all of that. So it could be like one of the commentators you read says this is like God firing a warning shot across the bow. Like, hey, they've encountered the fire of God already a couple of times. They've seen what it did even to the soon-to-be next high priest, Nadab and Abihu back in Leviticus. It, it completely consumed them. They've seen the fire of the Lord on top of the mountain. So here is God sending that fire to the outskirts of the camp. Like, whatever it is, was it lightning? Was it like volcanic activity? Was it, who knows? Who cares? The text just says fire from the Lord. And it's a symbol of his anger because it says his anger was burning. His anger was kindled. And that's the image that dominates this chapter. Um, when the people cried out to Moses, he prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. So that place was called Taberah because fire from the Lord had burned among them. Uh, and Taberah just means burning or, or flaming. But here's a brief snippet. Now, some commentators on this are divided. This section could be one incident. And then the next, what we're about to read, is another follow-up. Or, as customary in Hebrew narrative uh, syntax, this could be the condensed account of what we're about to read in more detail. Just like Genesis 1 was the condensed account of what then was filled out in Genesis chapters 2 and 3. So that may be the case here, that this burning, this fire that burned on the outskirts of the camp may be the metaphorical or the symbolic depiction of the plague that breaks out that will also die down in just a minute. So again, keep that in mind. You read one commentary, it'll say one. One commentary will say the other. Good commentaries will say we don't really know. It could read either. But that could be the case. Regardless, it's, a, it's an ominous foreshadowing. We've just set out in celebration. All of a sudden, it's like you, you just, you've just come out of boot camp. That's what Israel's been. This is their boot camp. You've just come out of boot camp. The troops, are their, their uniforms are clean. They're about to go march, you know, like march either out to war or, or to a parade or to some kind of show of something so that everybody can see the transformation that's happened. And it's like as soon as they leave the base, the troops already just start talking about rebelling or grumbling or how terrible the commanding officers are and this and that. That's more serious than the new recruits doing that, right? The new recruits, you know, Gomer Pyle straight off the bus, he starts goofing off or slacking off or whatever, and Sarge is going to get onto him because that's what recruits do. You don't know any better. But if you've been through the training and out the other side, when you start doing the same things that the recruits did, then there's trouble because you should know better. And that's the sense we get now when God deals with His people in numbers. He's not dealing with His people like He dealt with them in Exodus. In Exodus, they didn't know any better. He gave them a little, maybe a little swat every now and then. In Numbers, he's going to take off the belt. All right? He's, he's going to get the wooden spoon, as it was in my family. So, so it goes on, it says, verse 4, Now, the rabble with them began to crave other food. The rabble, that word is, a, it, it, it's, it's, don't know how to translate it. It's what's called a hapex legomenon, which means this is the only time this word is found in the Bible. So translators have to guess based on cognate languages and the construction of the word and this and that. It comes from the word, and this is important, and your, your translations don't always bring this out, but it comes from the verb to gather, the verb asaf. And to gather is going to be used throughout this, this section. In fact, that's the thing that ties this whole section together is to gather. 
But this word, asasuf, is like the, the, the ones who are gathered. Some commentators have said this is the mixed multitude that came out with Israel. So these aren't the Israelites. These are kind of the, the rabble among them. Others said, no, these are just the people who are doing the murmuring, the grumbling, the whatever it is. These are the ones who are gathered in their complaint. Israelite, non-Israelite, doesn't matter. Um, they're the, and one, one of the commentators translates it the riffraff, <laughs> which is a great way to put it. But that's kind of the, you know, that's, that's what it comes across as. Uh, others say mixed multitude, and, and just look at how your own translations do it. But this group, this gathered group, the rabble, would then begin to crave other food. And again, the, the Israelites started wailing. That's the verb for weeping, wailing. Like not just complaining now, wailing. Uh, and said, if only we had meat to eat. Literally flesh, basar. Um, if only we had meat to eat. And here's the key, verse 5. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost or freely. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we have, and NIV says, lost our appetite, but that's not a great translation. It's, it's literally our life's or our throat's or our breath, it's nefesh, it's the word for soul, has dried up. It uses the term dried up. Um, but now we have dried up. We never see anything but this manna. All right, That's their complaint. Now to kind of combat that complaint, there's a little parenthetical note here. Uh, this would be in parentheses if it were written in English. The manna was like coriander seed and looked like resin. The people went around gathering it and then ground it in a hand mill or crushed it in a mortar. They cooked it in a pot and made it into cakes. And it tasted like something made with, the NIV says made with olive oil. Other translations say cakes of olive oil. Some translations say buttery, creamy oil or something like that. It's a delicacy, this term. <clears throat> they tasted something like this delicacy. When the dew settled on the camp at night, the manna also came down. So it's just letting the reader, reminding the reader who may not remember the events of the Exodus, hey, this is what this stuff is. Remember, this is the miraculous, delicious delicacy that God has provided in the desert that would come down every day. This is literally their daily bread where Jesus got that imagery from. So they're complaining. They, they're complaining all we have is this miraculously wonderful given stuff that we have to eat. That's their complaint. And when they look back, when they compare it, we remember how we freely ate meat in Egypt. Freely. That meat was not free. They had to work for it. In fact, they rarely got meat. They got fish because they lived in Goshen, which was the delta area of Egypt and Nile. So yes, there was a lot of fish there. They had to go catch it. And they had to do that when they weren't making bricks and building cities as slaves. So it wasn't like waiters were coming around with plates of meat. It wasn't like a Brazilian steakhouse and they come around with the sword with just meat on it. And, oh, take your pick. It wasn't like that. They, they were not ancient Near East version of Chima uptown. They were having to work for their food. But they're complaining. They're looking back now. After a year, they, they look back and they look through rose-colored glasses. Here is yet another case of the never-ending whining and pining for the good old days that never existed. The good old days were never the good old days. They were always worse than we remember. I look back on my childhood and I'm like, it was amazing. 
I didn't think that at the time. I was getting spankings and I was having to do homework and I, you know, all of this stuff. But when I look back, what does my mind do? My mind filters out all of the boredom, all of the unpleasantness, all of the things that don't line up with what I'm wanting to remember. And then I just remember the cool stuff. Saturday morning cartoons, right? Cookies, crunch, cereal. Like those are the things I remember, the good things. I don't remember all the bad. Well, that's Israel. That's exactly what they're doing. They're looking back at Egypt. They're looking back at their bondage and they're complaining because their diet isn't as varied as they'd like it to be. Their diet of miraculous provision in the wilderness. So this is, that is different than the last time they came out of Egypt and complained about not having any meat. Last time they came out, they didn't have any of this relationship with God. They were not yet in covenant with Him. And they had never lived in the desert. They didn't know how to survive out there. They legitimately had a complaint. Hey, what are we going to eat? And God provided for them. Now, they don't have any of those excuses. It's, they're still complaining about the provisions that God has given them that have sustained them for a year living in the wild. So, verse 10, Moses heard the people of every family. Now it's moved from the rabble to all of the family. It's no longer the riffraff. This has infected everybody. The little group of murmurers has infected like yeast has spread out into the whole camp. And if you've ever worked in the church, you know exactly how this goes. Um, it continues to this day. But Moses heard the people of every family wailing, each at the entrance of his tent. The Lord became exceedingly angry. That's, again, a nice translation. It says literally uh, the Lord's nose flared or something like nostrils flared. That's the, the view of anger. <clears throat> uh, he asked the Lord, oh, and Moses was exceedingly troubled. He asked the Lord, why have you brought this trouble and trouble is not trouble? This is, this is again... He literally says, why have you brought this evil? It's ra'ah. It's the word evil. Why have you brought this evil on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give birth to them? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on oath to their forefathers? Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me. Give us meat to eat. I can't carry all these people by myself. The burden's too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, put me to death right now if I've found favor in your eyes and do not let me see my own ruin. This is his complaint now. So Moses, the rabble, started with the rabble. Now just a few verses before, Moses' triumphant song was sung. And, and we saw that about the ark. And rise up, O Lord, may your enemies be scattered. Blah, blah, blah. Mountaintop, deepest valley. You'll see this again with Elijah. Same thing. Mount Carmel, victory, greatest victory in the history of the world over false prophets, immediately wants to die and flees to this same area. Um, this, is, this is something that you see a lot. There's the high highs and the low lows when it comes to ministry, when it comes to serving others, when it comes to being a leader. You get to experience that. And he's infected. Moses, Moses it's kind of like the rabble's murmurings, complainings have worked their way into Israel through the camp. They've spread to all of the tents and now they're even to Moses himself. Even he's complaining. To the point where he says, and it's, it's probably idiomatic, like he probably doesn't literally say I want to die, but it's, 
it's probably a, a figure of speech. I mean, we say it all the time right now, like, oh, I'm so hungry I could die. But it's probably something like that, like, oh, just kill me now. Right? That's kind of what he's saying, but he's saying it to God Himself. And here's an interesting thing. God doesn't just smack him. Right? God doesn't say, Moses, are you kidding me? Like, after all we've been through for the past, I don't know, 80 years? Moses is an old man by now. He's, he's in his 80s. Um, God actually does, just like he does with Elijah later when he voices the same thing, he's going to actually step in and speak to him. Because you get the hint that with, with the burden, greater burden, there's greater responsibility, but God will also like, take steps to engage this leader. He'll also come down to, or, or theologically they say, he'll condescend to treating him in a one-on-one manner. This is Moses with whom he spoke face to face. And he told the people, Moses isn't like the other people that I talk to in dreams or visions or whatever. I talk to him face to face. So Moses and God have a relationship, and that relationship allows Moses to vent to God. And that's what he's doing here. He's venting. That's what everybody needs to vent sometimes. And Moses and God had... Now, if Moses didn't know God or if he was just in, in the relationship to God like one of the priests or something else, God may have acted differently in response. But there's, there's an intimacy here. And the psalmists have this intimacy as well. When they cry out to God in the psalms, there's psalms that read as if they're just yelling blame at God. Um, Jesus' cry on the cross was Psalm 22's first line. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's, it's almost like a blame and a, and a lament all at once. The whole book of Lamentations, that's why it's called Lamentations. Um, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, these guys, if you read their words, they're just like, you know, just firing their complaints and their, their woes and their heartaches to God. But that's the key. They're doing it to God. They're not complaining to other people. They're not murmuring. They're taking it directly to the one who can listen and who they should go to. So, uh, verse 16, the Lord said to Moses, all right, God's going to take care of Moses' complaints. One, too much for me to do on my own. Two, where can I get me for all these people? Those are his complaints. So he's going to deal with both of them. First, the Lord said to Moses, bring me 70 of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. And that's hearkening back again to Exodus because that word officials the word for shoter, and it's the word that was translated in Exodus as taskmasters or a foreman, foreman, the ones who Egypt appointed over the Israelites to kind of make them do the work. So bosses, so to speak. But God says, bring me 70 of the elders of Israel who are known to you as these bosses among the people. Have them come to the tent of meeting that they may stand there with you. I will come down and speak with you there. I will take of the spirit that is on you and put the Spirit on them. They will help you carry the burden of the people so that you will not have to carry it alone. Again, Moses has had to rely on the help of, of others. Uh, Jethro, his father-in-law, told him before, hey, you're going to wear yourself out. Appoint judges. So he appointed judges, and they would handle these legal disputes. Now, and he's appointed priests to handle the religious duties. Now, he's appointed these elders, these ones who, in some way, shape, or form, have some of the ability Moses has to hear from God and speak it to the people. Because that's what they're going to do. They're going to prophesy in a minute. And that's what prophecy is. Hearing from God and speaking it to people. Um, so he calls, and again, you know, the image is shared leadership. 
When, when Moses, remember back in Exodus, the Malachites were winning and Moses was holding his hands up and he couldn't do it. And so Aaron and Hur came beside him and held his arms up. Beautiful image of shared leadership. There's still a leader, but there's leaders who are holding that leader up and that leader could not do it without them. This is all, again, reinforcing that concept. It's not a cult of personality. Moses is not the new uh, Messiah figure for Israel. God is going to be their king. God is going to be their leader. Moses is God's figurehead. And Moses is going to have people that help him in many things. So, verse 18, God says, Tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. That means clean up. Wash your face. Wash your clothes. Change your clothes. Get ready. Uh, Then Get ready for tomorrow when you will eat meat. The Lord heard you when you wailed. If only we had meat to eat, we were better off in Egypt. Now that's rebellion. That's just flat out rebellion. They've moved from we want this to we were better off being servants of Pharaoh. We were better off serving this God, uh, Pharaoh, rather than the one true God, Yahweh. So consecrate yourselves. Now the Lord will give you meat and you will eat it. Oh yeah, you'll eat it. Not just for one day or two days or five, ten, or twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and you loathe it. We would say until it comes out of your ears, but the Hebrew idiom is until it comes out of your nose. And you will loathe it. Um, it literally, that loathe it is it will become nauseous. You will, you will, it'll make you sick. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you. And have wailed before him, saying, Why did we ever leave Egypt? They're not judged for wanting meat. They're going to be judged for wanting to go back to Egypt. So, saying, We had it better in Egypt. God knows the intention of their heart, and he addresses the intention of their heart here, which is, We don't really like this covenant thing anymore. We want to go back to Egypt. That's the foreshadowing, because it's going to become full blown rebellion in just two chapters from now. And they're going to actually try to. Do that. So this is kind of like it's stepping up each time. They, they complain, they murmur, God sends fire. This time, if this is a separate occasion, they're openly complaining, wailing, and God's going to send this judgment. And then the next time they do it, God's going to send another judgment. We're, we're in the disciplinary section of this book. Uh, verse 21. So that's what God told Moses. You tell the people this. Moses responds to God, Moses said, but here I am among 600 elephs of men, and elephs again, thousand or clans or regiments, we don't know, so we just say elephs the whole time in numbers. 600 elephs of men on foot, and you say, I will give them meat to eat for a whole month? Would they have enough if the flocks and herds were slaughtered for them? Would they have enough if all the fish in the sea were gathered for them? That word caught for them, it's actually that same gathered. So if all the fish in the sea, if all their flocks and their herds, where am I going to get enough meat for all these people for a month? Or better yet, where are you going to get enough meat? Is what he's kind of asking God. And uh, the Lord's response, the Lord answered Moses, is the Lord's arm too short? That's another idiom for meaning, is my power too little? You will now see whether or not what I say will come true for you. So in other words, Moses, Moses himself has also somewhat forgotten that this is the same God of the Exodus. I mean, the Exodus events, again, they're over a year in the past. It's a, it's, it's a while back, and they've just, God's miraculous show of display have not been what they once were for the past year or so. So they're about to ramp up. 
So Moses went out and told the people what the Lord had said. He gathered 70 of their elders and had them stand around the tent. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and spoke with him, and he took the spirit that was on him and put the spirit on the 70 elders. When the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they didn't do so again. And that's a weird, it reads weird in English, but it's, it's basically when the spirit came on them, they started prophesying. Now, whether that's ecstatic, like in, later in Kings, where there'll be like this prophetic frenzy in the book of Kings, or whether it's how it always is elsewhere in the prophets, speaking words of what God wants them, you know, giving words of wisdom and prophetic insight, whatever it is, text doesn't say. But what it does say is after this initial validation of their role, then they, they didn't do it anymore. So it wasn't like they became these whirling dervishes that just went around the camp spouting off prophecies all the time. It wasn't like that. But God was validating their role. Yes, these are now going to be people who share in this prophetic leadership of Moses among the people and, and help basically communicate God's will to the people. Uh, however, here's a side note. Two men, and it gives you their names, Eldad and Medad, had remained in the camp for whatever reason. Text doesn't say. Maybe they were unclean, couldn't go to the tabernacle. Maybe they were old. Maybe they were... Lazy? Doesn't say. We don't know. Uh, They remained in the camp. They were listed among the elders, but did not go out to the tent. Yet the Spirit also rested on them, and they prophesied in the camp. A young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, son of Nun, who had been Moses' aide since youth, spoke up and said, Moses, my Lord, stop them. But Moses replied, Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put His Spirit on them. Then Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. And this is a, 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 a foreshadowing of much later when the prophets are going to look forward to the new covenant because the prob, one of the problems is the Spirit of God has not permeated all of His people. It comes and it comes upon people and it gives them what they need for certain times like the judges or the prophets or the kings, but it doesn't live among them individually. And so Moses is like, I wish, that'd be amazing Well, then the prophets are going to look forward to a day. God says, hey, I'm going to make a new covenant. The one you broke, I'm going to make a new one. And this one, I'm actually going to put my spirit within you. So he tells Ezekiel, he tells Jeremiah, both of the same thing. And then Joel prophesies about it as well. One day, all your sons and your daughters will prophesy dream dreams, have visions. God will be there among his people. We see that happen at Pentecost. That's why Pentecost is such a miraculous thing. Because the longing that started all the way back here with Moses actually comes true. It's almost like Moses couldn't imagine something like that happening. But that's part of what makes the new covenant in so many ways superior to the Sinai covenant is its scope and its depth. And that's what we live in now. So we got a couple minutes. Let's see what happens. So he's taking care of the leadership problem. Moses, you're not alone. You've got 70 elders now. They're prophetic. They have the spirit. They can help you. Now let's deal with the other complaint. Now a wind. And that's a word play because the word for wind, anybody know what it also means? Spirit, breath, spirit, yeah, the ruach, the same wind, the same spirit that was just upon the people, that same spirit is going to do what it did back at the Exodus. It was a wind that blew the waters and made the Red Sea part so Israel could go through. It was the wind that brought judgment upon Pharaoh's troops as they went into uh, where they weren't supposed to go and following Moses and trying to capture them. Now the wind is going to bring another judgment upon the people. Now a wind went out from the Lord and drove quail in from the sea. 
It brought them down all around the camp to about three feet above the ground, as far as a day's walk in any direction. Some people think this means three feet tall piles of quail a day's walk in every direction. Theoretically possible, but not necessary. Uh, quail are low-flying birds, and they, in the migratory pattern, they start to fly low. Arabs in this region, in the Sinai Peninsula, catch them with nets, like just out of the air, because they don't fly way up high like the other birds. Um, and there's, I think in the early 1900s, there was a case of over a million of them being caught by the people in this area. They're just low-flying. So that's probably much closer to what the text is meaning is these low-flying quail coming through the camp so that the people could literally catch them. And that's what they did. Um, Verse 32, All that day and night and all the next day, the people went out and they gathered the quail. Gathered. No one gathered less than ten omers. An omer was a donkey load. the, The word comes from the word for donkey. And it's like a donkey, I don't know, like 40 bushels, but I don't know how much a bushel is because I'm a city boy. So uh, I just know it's one omer is like a donkey load. So the least that the guys gathered, the one who gathered the least had 10 omers. Then they spread them out all around the camp. They would spread out. Uh, Herodotus tells us that the people in Egypt would do this. They'd catch fish or they'd catch uh, quail, birds. They'd cut them, gut them, clean them, and then they'd lay them out in the sun with some salt to dry to cure them. So this is what the people are doing. They're catching them all day, all night, catching this quail, these quail that have blown in. Verse 33, but while the meat was still between their teeth, before it could be consumed or cut off or finished, the anger of the Lord burned against the people and He struck them with a severe plague. The anger of the Lord burned against. That's why people think this may be giving the details of that first thing that happened at the beginning of the chapter where the fire burned and this time the anger burned. But regardless, it doesn't matter. The point's the same. The anger of the Lord burned against people and He struck them with a severe plague. Therefore, the place was named Kibroth HaTavah, which means graves of craving, because they were buried, because there they buried the people who had craved other food. And then from Kibroth HaTavah, the people traveled to Hatzeroth and stayed there. So this section, the people who were craving the other food, they get what they want. But what they want ends up killing them. Some people say, well, there was massive food poisoning. Some people say it was improperly cared for meat. And they ate. They were so greedy that they didn't wait for it to cure. They didn't, you know, they were just like eating it raw. I don't know. The text leaves out a lot of the details so that it can make the main point, which is God had provided what they needed, their daily bread, but they wanted other stuff. They wanted something else. They craved something else. And so God's judgment on them was His giving them what they wanted in this case. And what they wanted ended up being the thing that ultimately killed some of them or brought a plague. That is going to carry on and on throughout Scripture. In Romans especially, Paul will say the wrath of God is being revealed in that. And he goes on to list it and it says, and God gave them over to these things. And so the idea of God's judgment, that can happen. You know, if you have kids sometimes, uh, you know, they'll say like, oh, I want this candy, I want candy, I want candy. And you know that's bad for them. But sometimes they need to learn the lesson. So what do you do? You say, all right. And you let them gorge on candy, and they get so sick. My mom bought, when we were a kid, I'll finish with this, we went to, she went to Sam's Club back when that was kind of a new thing. And I loved gummy worms. And they had a tub of gummy worms. 
with the little plastic tongs even that you could take them out. I mean, it was, it was industrial-sized gummy worms. This was for stores to use. Well, she brought one home, and it was on. I sat, and I watched cartoons, and I ate gummy worms, and I ate, I, I, I think I literally ate the entire tub. I think I did. In one go, yep. And I, it was probably 15 years before I ate another gummy candy after that. I was so sick. Even the smell of that gummy candy smell would just, ugh, and I would get chills because I remember how awful I felt during that time. This is kind of like that, but much more severe, obviously. Um, but that's, that's kind of what's going on. God's, okay, you want it? Here you go. Um, it's important, though, to remember, now in the next chapter, there's going to be another rebellion cycle, but this one's going to come from within Moses' family, and God's going to deal with it in another ironic, fitting way. The punishment will fit the crime, just like in this chapter, the punishment fits the crime. But uh, we're starting to see that now. God has taken the kid gloves off, and he's starting to say, okay, you want to go? We're going to go. And he's going to be harder on Israel now. It's important because people read these verses, critics of the Old Testament, oh, God's an angry God. Why is He always so angry? He does this and this. Not having followed the journey of the people from Exodus until now. That's the biggest problem with Old Testament uh, concepts of God is they don't take into account the relationship. And so they just see a God yelling. They don't see that these are the, these are the people that have come out of boot camp. They should not be acting like new recruits. They should be acting like trained, graduated soldiers, and they're not. So, but we'll pick it up next week. It gets more severe, and then the week after, it gets really severe. Um, have a great week.